I invite you to take your Bibles this evening, or this morning, it's not this evening, turn to John chapter 2. We have evangelist Jerry Savinsky with us this morning, and uh, he will actually be bringing the challenge this evening as part of our Vacation Bible School closing ceremony. And uh, Brother Jerry is Brent's dad, for those of you who don't know. And so at 5 o'clock, he's going to hold a question and answer time about Brent's childhood. So if you would like to know anything about Brent growing up, you can come. Is that how it works? Is that what we're doing? Okay. <laughs> By the way, if you're in first or third grade, you can slip out. But uh, uh, Brother Jerry, I'm really excited. God's gifted him and used him for many years to share the truth of the gospel. And he'll be offering our gospel presentation for our VBS service tonight. So excited to be able to partner with him in that way. And uh, very thankful that he could be uh, a part of our ministry this weekend like that. John chapter 2, our text begins in verse 13. The full account goes all the way down, really through the end of the chapter. Because of the the nature of what John is dealing with in this passage, this morning I'm going to preach verses 12 down through verse 17, and then next week we'll finish up this section, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, looking at the cleansing of the temple of Christ. The, the fullest account that's given to us in the Gospels. The only, uh, there, there are three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a lot of overlap. John is 80% new information. Uh, unique information, we should say, to the Gospel of John as he is writing for the specific purpose of, of showing Jesus as the Messiah. This is one of the few passages that is given in all four Gospels is the cleansing of the temple. And so we'll give it careful consideration this morning as we look beginning in verse 12 down through verse 17. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's time to face the music? Maybe not as popular today as it was. I've heard, I heard that several times growing up in my home. Joe, it's time to face the music. You've got you to gotta own up to what's happening here, or you've got to put your money where your mouth is, however you want to use that. The, the origins of that phrase, it's time to face the music, is kind of debated, but the most historical account that I found is actually a very interesting story that goes back hundreds of years ago as a man wanted to play in the Imperial Orchestra, but he didn't know how to play any instrument, but he was a very wealthy man and a very influential man in the city. So he donated great sums of money to the orchestra and demanded that because of his uh, influence and money that he be allowed to join the orchestra and play on stage, even though he didn't know how to play an instrument. And so scared of his influence and the money that he was given, the, the director of the orchestra, the maestro, allowed him to sit with the orchestra, gave him a flute, and said, pretend, pretend like you're blowing in it, move your fingers, and everybody will think that you're part of the orchestra. This deception went on for a couple of years until a new conductor took over the Imperial, Imperial Orchestra two years later. And he told the orchestra that he was going to shake things up a little bit and that he needed to hear personal auditions from each person so that he could make sure that everybody was in the right place. And so this man's greatest fear came to fruition as he was called to audition as a flautist to be a part of the orchestra. He was mysteriously sick the day of his audition. His doctor called and said, I'm sorry, he can't be there. He's sick. And the, guy, and the, uh, the conductor said, no problem, we can meet him as soon as he's well. And so the day came for this wealthy businessman to be examined by the conductor. I don't know what he was thinking. The story has it that he actually came to the audition. He sat down with his flute. He looked at the music. And maybe he thought some kind of miracle was going to happen. He was going to all of a sudden be able to play. But obviously it didn't. And thus that man had to face the music. He had to come to face-to-face with the realization that even though he wanted something and he pretended to be something, he was in fact, every single performance, sitting on the stage, he was a hypocrite. So when the day came for him to be tested, he had to face the music and he was revealed as a flaw. He was revealed as a fraud. 
Is that the origin of that phrase? I don't know. But if not, that makes a really good story, right? To explain the origin of that phrase. But as we look at the passage before us this morning, we're going to see that for years, the Jewish leadership, those who had stepped into authority to lead God's people, had been sitting in hypocrisy for hundreds of years. Just like that man sitting on stage pretending to play a part but was in fact totally empty, so the Jewish leadership had been operating their lives in the temple totally empty, totally in a hypocritical way. And on this day, in preparation for the Passover, the entire Jewish leadership, along with the thousands of people who found themselves in the court of the Gentiles, had to face the music. Because God cares about authentic worship. That's what this passage is all about. God cares about authentic worship. Now when we talk about authentic worship, We don't need to be in our minds contrasting authentic worship with other maybe cultural expressions of worship or other styles of worship. This authentic worship that Jesus is looking for is not some specific sort of cultural expression for if you were to go to one of our missionaries who are planting churches in different cultures, the expression of worship may be different in that culture than it is here in South Bend. It may be different even on the different coasts or in the South as it is in the North. For this is not about a specific cultural or stylistic expression of worship But rather, what is contrasted in this passage is the difference between hypocritical or and authentic worship. You could say empty worship or genuine worship. We're talking about the difference between hypocrisy and genuine worship. That's very important to understand when approaching this passage. Before reading this passage, I'd like to also reference a specific doctrine of God that is very important to understand in order to not misconstrue this passage. We've mentioned this before. We'll mention it many times in the coming years. Often we like to look at a passage of Scripture and ask the question, what doctrines of God are brought out as a result of this passage? But I'd like to reference a specific one this morning before we read the passage, and it's called the simplicity of God, the doctrine of the simplicity of God. The doctrine of the simplicity of God means that God is simple, not in a way that he's, not, uh, that, that he's easy to understand, but in the sense that he is whole, that he is one. God is not split up into parts. It's not as one part is the Father, one part is the Son, one part is the Spirit. That's often the way people think about God, a pie with three parts, but that would be an inaccurate picture of God. God is whole in every way and in every place. It also is inaccurate to view God, uh, once again to use the illustration of a pie, and to split up his attributes, right? God is loving, God is holy, God is gracious, God is merciful, and God is just. And we could go on and on with his attributes. And to look and to say, okay, when God does this, that's God acting in his love. And when God does this, that's God acting in his grace. And when God does this, that's God acting in his justice. And when God does this, that's God acting in his wrath. And to split it up in this way. And that's not at all the picture that we see of God. Because in every action and in in, in all of God's essence... He is the sum of all of his attributes all of the time. His wrath is his love. It is his grace. It is his justice. His love is also his justice. It is his grace. It is his mercy. It is his wrath. It's all in the same place. That's what we mean by the simplicity of God, that God is always whole. And I want to give you an illustration this way. I thought Brent was going to steal my illustration in Sunday school, but he didn't quite go this far. And so I think I've given this illustration here before. I'm not sure. If so, just bear with me. Um, my wife is deathly afraid of spiders, okay? And, uh, and, the, and how many of you are like that? Say, I do not like spiders. Okay, you, you, you have arachnophobia. It doesn't matter if it's a millimeter across or if it's, you know, a giant wolf spider or if it's a giant tarantula. It doesn't matter. Spiders just 
give you the heebie-jeebies, they scare you to death. Some of you are like that. My wife is like that. And so often in our, home, in our house, if I'm, if I'm home and there's a spider on the wall, I get the manly responsibility of dispatching that spider into Spidey Land or wherever they go, you know, when, uh, when they're no longer part of this world. And so, um, and so I just want to paint a situation for you. Let's imagine for a second that, that my wife's at home and, and there's a spider crawling across the floor, and she says, Joe, Joe, help me. You know, maybe it's one of those big wolf spiders or something that's crawling across the floor towards her, and she's, she's nervous, she's scared, so she backs away. She puts as much distance from herself as possible from that I- insect, right? Arachnid, whatever, you know? And, 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 she, and she's scared to death, and she, she calls for her knight in shining armor from the kingdom of South Bendia to come riding in on his horse, Right? And, and, and to come in and to slay the dragon, you know, and I revel in that responsibility. Now, let's, put, let's use that same scenario, but let's say that I'm, I'm not at home, or maybe I am at home. And, um, and we rewind the clock many years, and we find uh, my wife sitting in the living room, and our, um, our, our, our newly... Uh, born child is is on the on the floor or maybe in a crib. But let's just say on the floor, but, but it's on a blanket. Okay, don't judge. The baby's on a blanket, on the floor, and uh, or maybe the baby's a little bit older and and, and she's having tummy time or whatever. And uh, and my wife is there and she's enjoying fellowshipping with with the little baby, helpless child who's on the floor. And 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 the same spider comes out, and my wife is on the couch and that giant wolf spider is walking directly for that baby, right? Now, that sweet, kind, loving mother turns into supermom ninja in two seconds, right? And out of nowhere, the wrath comes raining down on that spider, so much so you got to get the spot remover out to get it out of the carpet, right? I mean, it's just... Whoom! She turns into Super Ninja who's smashing the spider. Don't get near my baby. Stay away. Now, what is it that motivates that mom to come launching off the couch to smash that spider in that instance? Is it anger? Yes, as demonstrated, right? Is it love? Yes, it is. Because in that moment, actually what's driving that outpouring of wrath onto that helpless spider who was simply looking for something, you know, looking for a home, you know? And the the outpouring of wrath on that spider was actually a response of a protective, loving parent to something that is threatening their child. And because that spider threatened something that that mom loved so much, there's an outpouring of wrath in that. Does that make sense? And so we can't, you can't just say, okay, this is God's wrath, and, and, and this is God's love. And I know that's a silly illustration with the spider, but it, it, and, it, and it breaks down if you go too, too, too deep, but, but we have to understand that any time that Jesus expresses himself, he is expressing the totality of both his humanity and his deity, for he is truly God and truly man. And so what we have displayed for us in the cleansing of the temple, the reason this is so important is because you may read somebody who says, you know, I'm okay with Jesus and the woman at the well or Jesus and Nicodemus, but I'm not okay with Jesus and cleansing the temple because I, wanna, I want a God who's loving and caring and kind, but a God who would come in and overturn the money changers and chase out all the hypocrites that were in God's temple. I don't want to worship a God that is angry like that. 
And yet what we have to understand, and, and we'll get to this at the end of the message, but we may, it may be good for us to see this at the very beginning, that verse 17, is his, his passion, his action is driven by his zeal for holiness and his love for his Father. His care for genuine, authentic worship. And this action of chasing people out and and causing a stampede with the oxen and the sheep and taking the doves and removing them is actually an act of mercy upon these people. For why would God allow someone to be a hypocrite and not point it out to them? It's an act of mercy and love to say, embrace the true Jesus. Embrace God for who he is. Leave your hypocrisy at the door and genuinely embrace the true God. And so even in this act of love and wrath, we see God's mercy in doing this. And we could go through all of his attributes if we had time this morning. We won't do that, but, but, I, but I use that as an introduction, that illustration, in order to help you understand how Jesus is, is accomplishing the mission that he's been given. That it is a full expression of the totality of the attributes of both his humanity and his deity as he expresses the truth that God desires genuine worship. So with that in mind, let's look at John chapter 2 and we'll read verses 12 through 17. John chapter 2 and verse 12. After this, after the miracle of water to wine in Cana, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word this morning, may you grant clarity. May you help us to understand your word so that we may believe it and thus have a life that reflects it. I pray that the statement in verse 17 would be true of all of our hearts this morning, that every genuine believer would be zealous for the temple of God to be pure from sin and pure from hypocrisy. We pray for our dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathering all over South Bend and Michiana and and the world through our mission endeavors as they gather on this Lord's Day. That you would help the word that's preached in those churches to go forward with power. And we pray here in this setting, in this context, the preaching of your word would be an accurate representation of the truth that it contains and the truth that it is. That you would align our hearts with it as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 12 is a transitional statement that takes us from Cana to Jerusalem, to the Passover. Verse 12 says this, after this, after the changing of water to wine in Cana, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1 refers to the city of Capernaum as Jesus' own city, for it was here in the city of Capernaum that Jesus kind of had his basis of operations. You could say it was his home for these few years of his public ministry. We see more about the city Throughout the Gospel of John, we'll see it referenced in chapter 4. We'll also see it referenced in chapter 6. We see it referenced extensively in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And I think it would be good for us to pause to talk about Capernaum for just a minute. 
Capernaum was Jesus' home city, so much so that there was a, there's a statement in the book of Mark that says that when Jesus was in Capernaum, that they brought all who were sick, and all were healed, and that when Jesus would leave some of these cities that he was in, specifically in his home city of Capernaum, that there were none left who were sick, none left who were lame. As Jesus enters into this city and fulfills prophecy by giving sight to the blind, by healing the sick, restoring the lame. However, it would also be beneficial for us to recognize that even though it was Jesus' home city, the city as a whole, the people in Capernaum, rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They rejected Jesus as the promised one from the Old Testament. Listen to Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. You'll be brought down to the grave. You'll be destroyed. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That Capernaum had the power of God evidenced visibly over and over and over and over again, and yet the city as a whole still rejected Christ. This reminds us that faith is not based on evidence. The role of apologetics in the Christian life is not to try to convince people that there's enough evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Capernaum, though the city had a front row seat, maybe more than any other city in the first century, to the evidence of the miracles and the signs, as John calls them over and over again, of Christ, they still rejected him. So friend, if you say, I'll believe if I just see this happen, you're believing a lie. God is evidencing himself through his word, through your conscience that's resonating with the truth of God. He's evidenced himself in the general revelation of his creation around us. But if you do not believe Jesus based on the evidence of the word of God, you will not believe, even if you see miraculous signs. Capernaum saw, and Capernaum rejected, and they were judged for it. So come to Christ by faith. The evidence and the truth of your faith should be grounded and found in the Word of God, not in miraculous signs and wonders. Well, why do you believe? Well, because I saw this and I saw this. But friend, it should be I believe because the Bible says. And I place my faith and trust in what God has revealed in His Word. It doesn't mean that evidence doesn't play a role in the Christian life. It plays a role in the Christian life for us to recognize and for others to recognize that we have a reasonable faith, that we have a faith that is not a blind faith, but is a reasonable faith, but that evidence will never convince someone to come to Jesus by faith. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that a heart of stone can be made a heart of flesh. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that a dead person can be brought to life and thus place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We also see in verse 12, Jesus' family noted. We see Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' brothers, and Jesus' disciples. And this is a very important distinction. It reminds us that we need to base our doctrine not on tradition, but on the teachings of Scripture alone. Verse 12 reminds us that the Bible teaches very clearly that Mary and Joseph continued to have children together after the birth of Jesus. Thus, we can biblically and confidently reject the false teaching of the perpetual virginity of Mary. We see it evidenced for us in verse 12. Those who would defend the perpetual virginity of Mary would explain away this passage to say that, yes, it does say the the brothers of Jesus, but all Christians can be called the brothers and sisters of Christ. And that is a true statement that all 
Christians, all followers of Christ, we could say all disciples of Christ, because disciple just means followers, can be referred to as the brothers and sisters of Christ. He is our older brother, according to the book of Hebrews. However, under the inspiration of the Spirit, John goes out of his way to say three types of people were with Jesus. The mother of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus, and the disciples of Jesus. And so you have two groups who are biologically related to Jesus, the mother of Jesus and the half-brothers of Jesus, through Mary and Joseph and the followers of Christ. The text is clearly separating those who are related to Jesus as his half-brothers and those who are following him as his disciples. Now, as we get into verses 13 through 17, I have four words for you that are going to guide our discussion. You can think of these as signposts along the way so that you know where we are in the story. Four words. The first is the word Passover. The second is the word hypocrisy. The third is the word purification. And the fourth is the word passion. And if you want to alliterate them, you can say Passover phony, which just sounds cheesy, so we're going to say hypocrisy. But if you're one of the alliteration people who's like, it just has to be alliterated, there are three P's, I have to have another P, then you can say phony, purification, and passion. Okay? Let's begin with the Passover in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews, John says, was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was one of the three great feasts to be observed by the Jewish people. We also see the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. These, for these three feasts, it was encouraged, if not commanded, that all able-bodied men who considered themselves to be Jews journeyed to Jerusalem each year for all three of these feasts. That's why we see, just as a side note, in Acts chapter 2, during the Feast of Pentecost, that we, you have the, the, uh, the disciples, the apostles, standing and preaching the word, and you have all of the Jews from all over had come to Jerusalem for the Passover time, and it was in, or for, for the Feast of Pentecost, and it was at that point that they heard the word of God in their own language. And so that kind of helps us understand Acts chapter 2 as well for the Feast of Pentecost. But for the Feast of the Passover, really, you could call this the chief feast or the king feast. This was the main of the three. For the Feast of of the Passover, there would be millions of people who would descend on Jerusalem. And John makes it very clear, both at the beginning of Christ's ministry here beginning at Passover, and then in the, in the Passion Week of Christ in John chapter 11 and 12 and 13, and I believe 18 as well, that that's also the Passover. And then right in the, in the middle in John chapter 6, there's another Passover. John references the Passover over and over and over again because John wants you to recognize that the ministry of Jesus and the death of Jesus doesn't make sense outside the understanding of the Passover. And so what's happening, as we referenced last week, is that there are millions of people who are descending on Jerusalem. Josephus said approximately 2 million Jews were in the city of Jerusalem at that time. To give you an idea, in the greater South Bend area, we have a population of just over 100,000 people. And you take tiny Jerusalem and you insert a total of 2 million people during this, fa- this Passover week. So in verse 13, we see it's the time of the Passover, but not only that, we see Jesus aligning himself under the law. Look at the second half of verse 13. Verse 13, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And this is important for us to understand as well, because Jesus, <clears throat> by going up to Jerusalem, what he's doing is he is fulfilling the law of Christ in every point. That Jesus made the pilgrimage as a man to Jerusalem to fulfill the law of Christ in every way. And this is a reminder to us 
that even though Jesus is overturning and overthrowing the legalistic, hypocritical religion of the Pharisees, he is not overthrowing and throwing out the law of God. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so we see Jesus aligning under the law of God by fulfilling his duty as a man, as a Jew, by by celebrating the feast of the Passover. We call this the active obedience of Christ. That Jesus fulfilled the law in every respect. There is not one aspect of the law that Jesus was supposed to fulfill that he did not fulfill and obey fully as a man. It's vital that you understand this. How vital is it that we understand the active obedience of Christ? Well, shortly before his death in 1937, the theologian, the theologian uh, J. Gresham Machen He dictated his final telegram to one of his friends before his death. And if you can imagine, I've always wondered what what, what a theologian thinks about in the moments before passing into eternity. And here was J. Gresham Machen's thought. Only 13 words was his last telegram before his death. In 1937, he said the following, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, for I have no hope without it. The telegram, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. Paw, stop, period. His last sentence, no hope without it. How important is it that Jesus went up to Jerusalem to fulfill the law of God in your place? It is so vital that without the obedience of Jesus as truly man, To every point of the law, you have no hope without it. Why? Because you just don't need your sins forgiven. You need God's righteousness given to you. And the only way that the righteousness of God can be imputed to your account is if Jesus is your substitute is if he pays the price for your sin through his death on the cross and gives you his righteousness in its place. And if the righteousness of Christ is not the full righteousness of God, you have no hope. And so therefore, we see a beautiful example of Jesus submitting to the law of God as a man living in obedience so that you and I can have the righteousness of God credited to us by faith and thus gain access to the Father. How did Jesus do this? Most people believe that Jesus obeyed God in all of these respects. Man, the law was was really detailed. And the only way that someone could do that was if they had some sort of superhuman power inside of them if they were more than human in order to fulfill the law of God. What I'd like to submit to you this morning, friends, is that when we embrace a proper Christology, we understand that Jesus had the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of him just like you and I do. He had no sin nature, so it was different. But he had the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him, and he fulfilled every command through the power of genuine faith and fervent prayer. Meaning that Jesus had at his disposal the same tools that you and I have to live an obedient life. And he did that always and at every moment, living in the power of the Spirit in fervent prayer, and in genuine faith. He obeyed the law of God as a true man and thus could impute to your account the righteousness of God. And so we see Jesus here in genuine faith and in fervent prayer fulfilling the law of God on your behalf. The Passover, a time when the lamb would be sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. 
and thus the wrath of God would pass over the nation of Israel. Jesus, the true Lamb of God, living out the righteousness of God in Jerusalem. The second word I'd like you to see is the word hypocrisy. The first word is Passover. The second word is hypocrisy. Verse 14. In the temple, he, Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Why was it such a big deal that people were selling things in the temple? Well, the key phrase in this, in this verse is, is the first three words. It's really the, the hinge point here. In the temple. That they're desecrating that which has been called holy by God. But the question we have to ask is, how are they desecrating it? They're not desecrating the temple of God by simply selling ox and sheep and pigeons. They're not desecrating the house of God by simply exchanging money. There's nothing sinful about selling and exchanging money. I've done it many times. I've been to foreign countries for mission trips and different travel. And you go to a place and they won't accept American dollars or you, you need the national currency and so you go and you exchange currency. In order to understand what's happening here, we have to once again put ourselves in the place of a first century Jew coming to Jerusalem. For the feast of the Passover, there were many different sacrifices that were required. And if you lived, say, 20 or 30 miles outside of Jerusalem, and you made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, you probably are not going to want to take your sacrifice with you along the way. I mean, I don't even want to take my dog on vacation with me, much less trying to take a multi-day journey on foot with my family, dragging an ox or, or, a, or a sheep or, or carrying pigeons in a cage, right? And so they would come to Jerusalem and then they would purchase their sacrifice there rather than having to travel with it. And so as human nature does, somebody said, aha, here's a good business venture. I'm going to raise sheep and raise cattle and raise pigeons to be able to sell to, to Jews who would come to Jerusalem for the Passover, for these feasts. And I will then provide this as an act of love for those so they only have to bring their money and then they can purchase their sacrifice. And as you can imagine, this happened over and over and over again throughout the years. There was instituted, um, Annas the high priest saw a business opportunity and said, as he was a corrupt high priest, a, a hypocritical worshiper of God, we should only allow the sale of those, of those sacrifices to happen in the temple, and then we can take a cut. And so that's, now let's take advantage of people saying, you could buy, if you would have brought your, your pigeons with you, they may have cost you a dollar to buy two or three pigeons or turtle doves. But when you come to Jerusalem, these are, these are special pigeons, right? And so they're $20. And so they raise the price and they take advantage of the travelers, especially the poor travelers. And then the temple gets a cut of everything. And then they said, well, hey, how about this? How about we only use certain currency in the temple? We will only accept certain types of, uh, you know, uh, of exchange here. And so we're only going to use these types of coins, and you can only get them in Jerusalem. So if you're from somewhere else and you're traveling in, you're going to have to come in, and you're going to have to exchange this currency for temple currency, and we're going to charge you an incredible percentage in order to change this currency. So we're just going to skim the top and take advantage of vulnerable people who have no other way to worship. And we're going to take advantage of these people and by taking advantage of them, we're going to line our own pockets. And so as Jesus makes his way into the temple, he doesn't see a businessman who's lovingly making a, a, a living by providing for those who are journeying to Jerusalem, to the temple for the Passover. What he sees is hypocrites 
who are fleecing the vulnerable and taking advantage of those who are there in order to line their own pockets. He sees a temple that's supposed to be set aside for worship, but instead, those who claim to be the spiritual leaders of God's people taking advantage of the very people that they claim to serve. He does not cleanse the temple because they were selling items in the temple. He's cleansing the temple because of the hypocrisy evidenced by those who are supposed to be caring for God's people. It's very important to understand. We, we have a resource center set up right out these doors that we curate resources that we believe will be helpful for you in your spiritual walk. It's worth your, worth your you know, your, uh, it's worth you going by there, right? And we sell things at the resource center. And, and hopefully you're not going to show up with a whip next Sunday and drive out everybody from the church and cleanse our resource center because we're selling things. No, we, we cover the cost of, of what it costs us to get them here, and that's it, because we want to provide them for you. But if we were to somehow say, you know, this, this blue hymnal that you can buy at the resource center. I know you can get it on Amazon for 15 bucks, but if you buy it through us, I know it's $45, but you have to understand, this was under Pastor Ben's pillow for a week. <laughs> you know? It's now something worth $5. By the way, um, Pastor Ben is here somewhere. He's got a big smile on his face. Where are you? He's got a big smile on his face because uh, he has a new baby at home. And I am confident that he has pictures on his phone if you would like to ask him afterwards about his beautiful son, Justice. What a good name. By the way, it means God has justified and uh, something like that. Close enough. Uh, something of that nature. And uh, is a good, good manly name, Justice. And so go talk to Pastor Ben about why this hymnal was under his pillow uh, and why it's $45 instead of 15 And he would say, well, if you sing from this hymnal, your worship will be more acceptable to God. And that sounds ridiculous, but you know there are people on TV who say the same thing, right? And people buy into it every day. And those who claim to be spiritual leaders, who take advantage of God's people for their own benefit, will have specific judgment reserved for them in hell. Friends, listen carefully. Jesus is judging hypocrisy and he's judging spiritual abuse. The abuse of the, uh, of the leadership of the Jewish nation to take advantage of the vulnerable Jewish people to line their own pockets and to take, uh, take things for themselves. So verse 14 reveals to us, a, a first century reader would read verse 14 and say, ha, I know exactly what's happening there. Hypocrisy. Third word, purification. Purification. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Just like Jesus replaced the fake purification water in those stone vessels of purification that we learned about last week, just like he replaced that fake purification water that the, that the hypocritical Pharisees had required, and he replaced it with the wine of truth. So now Jesus is entering into another sphere. In fact, many people take these two accounts and join them together, and they call them the miracles of cleansing. Because Jesus, who cleansed the water, part, the water pots with his wine of truth, is now cleansing the temple. And he comes in, and as he enters into this temple, he sees the false uh, leaders who would eventually reject him as the genuine Messiah. He takes cords or ropes that were, uh, that, that were probably uh, there to tie the animals up as they were for sale, and he takes some of those and he fashions them into a, into a whip, and he goes around and he whips the animals to get them out. And if, the, and if you think Jesus is abusing the animals, 
John actually goes out of his way to show you that he's not because he goes to the doves, right, the pigeons, who were in cages, and he tells them, listen, get your cages out of here, right? He didn't stomp the cages and whip the birds as they're flying away. He's not acting in this, in this, this anger that is just out of control. Some people just see Jesus seething and going around and whipping people. It never says he whipped people. It says that he used the whip to drive them out. And so he's, he's whipping the, 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 the cows, which is the only way you can get them to move the way you want, right? And he's, he's saying, get out of here. And he's cleansing the temple, but he's doing it in a very calculated and meaningful way, friend. He's not out of control. The wrath of God is always in control, and it's always pointed, and that's why it should terrify you. It's because the wrath of God is not some out-of-control anger that you may see evidenced in your home or in your own life. It is a calculated, reasoned, purposeful wrath. And it's to be feared. And so... Jesus comes in and he chases everything out of the temple, the courtyard, the, the, the court of the Gentiles. He, he chases them all out and he, and he goes and he takes the money that is from ill-gotten gain and he throws it all over the courtyard. And he takes the tables that were used, the, the tables of abuse, and he throws them and overturns them. And his wrath is on those who would take advantage of the people that God loves so much. That just like the wrath of the mom is worked out on that spider that threatens the baby that she loves so much, so the wrath of God is worked out against sin and it reveals to us how much God loves his children. It reveals to us the passion with which he pursues genuine worshipers. We need to pause briefly and help us understand the difference between biblical anger and unbiblical anger. Unbiblical anger is any anger that is a result of selfish desire and results in actions or desires for sin. Most of the time, if not all of the time, I think it would be, I think it would be safe to say all of the time, but because you know, I probably shouldn't use superlatives like that, we'll just say... of the time, most of the time, in your life and in my life, the reason we get angry is because of something in us that we didn't get. I didn't get my time. I didn't get my stuff. What I love has been damaged. And so our anger is self-focused. And as a result of it being self-focused, it is sin, and it results in more sin. Therefore, my, the desires that flow out of my anger are also sin. Manipulation, hurt. I didn't get what I want, so I want you to feel like I feel, or I want to manipulate circumstances to come in my favor. It's all about me, and I get angry. And the anger manifests itself. You know, some of you are, are, are clams, and some of you are volcanoes. You know, for some of you, with any anger, it's just an eruption, boom, and everybody gets burned by your lava, right? But for some of you, you're clams, and you want to be like, okay, fine, you know, and then, and then you just clam up, but it's the same, you know, it's the old adage, how are you doing? I'm fine. Oh, Good. How are you really? I'm fine. Ask me 17 more times, and then I'll tell you how I am. And we all laugh because we've all been through it, right? It's that some of us are clams, and some of us are like, oh, don't, you don't want to touch that. <laughs> because when you touch that, something's going to happen, and you're going to want to run for cover, right? And so they're, they're both sides, but it's all just anger. It, it's, it's something that you wanted that you did not get, or something that you fear that is happening. Two questions. What do you want? What do you fear? That will tell you so much in your life. When you don't get what you want or some, you do get what you fear, you get angry. That's sinful anger. The tests that you can ask about your anger to see if it's righteous anger. Number one, why am I angry? Is it self-focused? Number two, what is the result of this anger? Is it righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit Or is it the fruit of the flesh? 
You say, is it possible to get angry and show the fruit of the Spirit righteously? Yes, and that's what Jesus showed. Biblical anger. We would call this righteous anger. This is anger that results from God or God's character being blasphemed and results in righteous actions or desires. Someone takes the name of, the, of God in vain. They use God's name wrongly and it stirs up in you a righteous indignation and it motivates in you a hatred for ever taking God's name in vain in your, in your own life. Sinful anger would then be to say something else that's sinful, right? But righteous anger would say, no, I hate that so much that I would never participate in that sin. Righteous anger is seeing God's character maligned by those who claim to be Christian or even sin explained away, the Bible manipulated, and it motivates you to study your Bible more. Righteous anger. It's seeing the abuse of the weak and being motivated by a righteous anger to protect and provide and to care for the weak. It's righteous anger. And so, friend, do not explain your anger away using fig leaves. You know what fig leaves are? Going a little bit off my notes, which is always dangerous, but I'll tell you what fig leaves are. Fig leaves are excuses and words that we use to excuse away sin like Adam and Eve did to cover themselves when they were exposed to God. Right? Well, they choose, they sew together fig leaves. And God said, no, 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 that's not working. Right? We do the same thing. Oh, I'm not angry. I'm just, I'm just frustrated. No, no, no. You're angry. Right? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not filled with lust. I'm just, just, just a normal person. I'm just red-blooded. No, you're right. You are a normal person. That is a true statement. But that's a fig leaf to cover up the fact that you're struggling with lust. I'm not covetousness. I just need a little bit more money so that I can do what God wants me to do with my fifth house, you know? No. No, that's a fig leaf that covers the sin in your life. And we all love to do that, don't we? We all love to take these, uh, Jerry Bridges calls them respectable sins. We all love to take these fig leaves and cover our lives so that our life doesn't look quite as bad as it actually is. When in fact, we need to call sin as the Bible calls it. Okay, rabbit trail over. Let's get back to the fourth word, passion. Passion. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, anger for your house will consume me. Is that what that says? No. Because this is not about the wrath of God. The wrath of God we see evidenced But the motivating passion behind this is a zeal for the purity of the worship of God. This is a quote from Psalm 69. It's often, Psalm 69 is often quoted in the New Testament in reference to uh, the passion and death of Jesus. It's even been called uh, the suffering, I think think some reference it as the suffering Savior Psalm. And, and in Psalm 69, David is writing, and what he's, what he's writing about is the fact that he just wants to do what's right, and because he's doing what's right, people are coming out against him. You ever felt that way? I, I'm, I'm standing up for what's right, and because I'm doing what's right, I'm feeling like I'm getting attacked from all sides. Like, I, I just want to do what's right. I just want to live for God. I, I just want to live in integrity. I just want to operate with biblical morals. And yet, because I'm operating with biblical morals, I am, I am being attacked by people at my work or by my boss or by people around me or even people in my own family who don't understand that I just want to do what's right. And so David cries out in Psalm 69 and verse 9, verse 9 or verse 19, I think it's verse 9, Psalm 69 and verse 9, he says, zeal for the Lord has consumed me saying, I just want to be holy, and because of that, I'm being attacked. And and John references this as as a prophecy regarding Jesus, that Jesus is the better David. And if Jesus, if David cared about the holiness of God, how much more does the Son of God care about the holiness of God? 
And so he is zealous to find genuine worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is making the point that God cares about authentic worship and he cares about authentic worshipers. The temple that used to be reserved for prayer and the sounds of worship was now filled with the sounds of hypocrisy and corruption. What are some applications from this verse this morning? Well, you may be tempted to apply this passage to the location of corporate worship and say this church needs to be, the church building needs to be clear, but I think that would be a misreading of this passage because this building, friends, is not parallel to the Old Testament temple. These are two very different things. Yes, this is a beautiful facility. Yes, God has provided for us a, a place that we can gather with heat and air conditioning and, and that's free from distractions and that's, that can show the excellence of God's character. But this is not a temple. You are the temple. God's people are the temple. And there are really two applications here. One is a corporate application of God's people being authentic. And the first application will go together and to say in our membership, and if you're here and you're not a member of community, we're glad you're here. But specifically in regards to our membership, those who have come together, who have covenanted around the Word of God and the people of God, that in that group we have a responsibility to keep that group accountable to the Word of God. And that is through the process of discipling. That if there is hypocrisy that is evidenced through open, unrepentant sin, a lifestyle of continual, open, unrepentant sin, that you have a responsibility as a covenant member of Community Baptist Church to go to that other covenant member of Community Baptist Church and to call them to repentance lovingly and graciously, but to speak truth into their life and to call them to repentance because God cares about authentic worship and how can you gather with your brother or sister in Christ who is a member of this local gathering who is living in open, unrepentant sin and pretend like nothing is wrong. We don't go out of malice and out of envy and out of hatred and jealousy. We go out of love and say, dear brother or sister in Christ, you and I have covenanted together to present a right picture of Jesus to all of those who would look on and to each other. And therefore, I'm asking you to do just that. And if you continue to persist in your unrepentant, open sin, as we continue to implore you to repentance, you have forfeited your right to become to, to, to keep your membership in this congregation. Why? Because Scripture requires us to treat you as how you would act. And that is an unbeliever. And so that is what we call the loving process of church discipline because the most unloving thing that we could do as a church is to allow someone who is openly unsaved be a member of this church and pretend like they're a Christian because their soul is at stake. And so for their soul's sake, we say, I cannot rightfully accept you as a brother or sister in Christ in this congregation. And that's why we take membership so seriously. See, you didn't think we could get membership out of a John 2, 13, right, 12 through 17, but it's right there. It's right there in our discipling relationships. And frankly, there, there are some of you who are thinking about membership and it's that exact process that scares you to death because accountability pushes you away. But as we gather together as our membership, we covenant together to lovingly grow together in Christ. The second application of this would be a personal application, and that would be a personal application to rid your life of hypocrisy. By the way, if you'd like a, a reference to go along with this focus, it would be 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. 
1 Corinthians 6.15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? For the Holy, for, for who you have from God, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. And so therefore, you, brother or sister in Christ, you are the temple. This is not the temple. You are the temple. We are the temple. We are the body of Christ as we have the very presence of Christ dwelling among us. And so the message of this passage is to rid your personal life of hypocrisy because God desires authentic worship and authentic worshipers. How do I spot those who are false worshipers that are like these in the temple? Well, false worship is evidenced by spiritual leaders who would take advantage of the vulnerable in order to fuel their own gains. How do you know if someone is teaching the gospel? Watch their life and listen to their message, what they say and what they don't say. Are they using the body? Or are they serving the body? Jesus has a great zeal for authentic worship, so much so that one day, friends, he will return and he will cleanse this world of every hypocritical worshiper. For there will be many in that day who say, Lord, Lord, we did all this stuff. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And when he returns, it will be too late. For when he returns, his love for his church to be gathered to himself will also be worked out in his wrath of destroying all those who would side against him. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, may I implore you to lay your heart and your life down at the foot of the cross and accept Jesus by faith, accept him as your Lord and your King, that you may come to him in faith, that you may be saved from the wrath of God. The RMS Queen Mary was the largest ship to cross the ocean when it started in 1936. It had an illustrious career, four decades through the World War. She served until she was retired in 1967. You can still see her as she sits in Long Beach, California. In fact, after extensive remodeling, uh, just two months ago, back in April, three months ago, uh, she, uh, the uh, Queen Mary was opened again. You can go uh, stay overnight. It's, it's a hotel and a, a, a full of restaurants there. But in 1967, when they drove it over and they parked it in California, and they realized the Queen Mary would not sail any longer They started an extensive remodel of the ship to turn it into a hotel and a restaurant area. And the first thing was to take off the smokestacks, the three gigantic, enormous cruise ship smokestacks um, so they could get to the deck. And as the crane pulled the smokestacks off of the ship and, and brought them over to the dock as they were set down on the dock, the minute that the crane let go, the entire smokestack just crumbled. It shocked everybody and they didn't know why. Until upon a closer examination, over those 30 plus years of use with the salt water and the moisture coming out and the steam, all of the metal had completely corroded away. And the only thing that was holding that gigantic smokestack up were 37 layers of paint. That was it. Crazy. And a strong marine paint as it went over layer, over layer, over layer made it look really pretty. But the minute it was tested, it completely crumbled. And friends, wouldn't it be sad to live your entire life putting layer after layer after layer of paint only to crumble when you meet Jesus be cast into outer darkness. This passage is a call to be an authentic worshiper. What does it mean? It means that Jesus is your king. And when you sing songs like all I have is Christ, your heart resonates with truth. That when you sing the old hymns of the faith, that your heart cries out, Lord, let that be true of me. When you sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow.
your heart fills with wonder and amazement that these are your people, that we gather together. We have nothing to show. We are all broken people. We don't need layers of paint. We're beggars seeking bread at the same place. And we come together as authentic worshipers with an authentic message of worship, with a genuine heart before God, thus to escape the wrath of God and be found under his grace and his glory and his love for all of eternity because God desires authentic worship. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the truth of your word and the clarity of it. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. May it guide and guard and keep our hearts and our minds through our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be authentic worshipers. May we examine our hearts to see if we be in the faith. May we recognize the importance of seeing you alone as our Lord and Savior. You alone as our King. And if there is one here who has been living a life of hypocrisy, may they cry out Cry out to you for mercy. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In this moment, would they find in heaven not a judge, but a father.